Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part five of my deep dive into the history of video games. 1997, a year that epitomized the roller coaster nature of the video game industry. As the 3D revolution continued to shake things up, we saw triumphs, tribulations, and even a few unexpected twists. Sony's PlayStation reigned supreme, capturing the hearts of gamers worldwide and becoming the best selling console in Japan for the first time. Nintendo and Sega, on the other hand, were locked in a fierce battle to keep up with the ever-changing industry. Nintendo leaned into its family-friendly image, while Sega tried to find its footing with an edgy attitude. This struggle led to some daring decisions and intriguing alliances that forever shaped the gaming landscape. Duke Nukem Forever kicked off its production this year, a highly anticipated title that fans eagerly awaited the release of. Little did they know, the development process would become a legendary tale of delays, engine changes, and company acquisitions spanning more than a decade. This epic journey would ultimately shape the industry's approach to game development and how we perceive vaporware. What factors allowed Sony's PlayStation to dominate the market, leaving Sega and Nintendo scrambling? to keep up. And as we look back at the struggles between Nintendo and Sega, how did their contrasting strategies and partnerships shape their respective futures in the gaming world? The advent of the PlayStation had ushered in the era of 3D gaming, and developers were exploring the possibilities of this new dimension with a fervor. In the midst of this technological revolution, Squaresoft released Final Fantasy VII. This was a game that not only embraced the possibilities of 3D graphics, but also pushed the boundaries of what was possible in terms of storytelling and gameplay in a video game. It was a game that was not afraid to take risks, and these risks paid off in a big way. One of the most significant aspects of Final Fantasy VII was its departure from previous Final Fantasy titles, with its three-party member system. This was a bold move that fundamentally changed the dynamics of combat in the game. Instead of a large party of characters, players had to strategically choose three characters to take into battle. This added a layer of strategy to the game, as players had to carefully consider the strengths and weaknesses of their party members. The Materia and Limit systems were another innovative feature of Final Fantasy VII. The Materia system allowed players to customize customize their character's abilities, giving them a degree of control over their character's development that was unprecedented in the series. The Limit System, on the other hand, introduced a new mechanic that allowed characters to unleash powerful attacks after taking a certain amount of damage. These systems added depth to the game's combat and made each battle a unique and engaging experience. But perhaps the most influential aspect of Final Fantasy VII was its narrative. The game's story, which follows the mercenary Cloud Strife in his fight against the Shinra Electric Power Company, was a complex and emotionally charged tale that resonated with players. The game's narrative was not afraid to tackle heavy themes, and its characters were complex and well-developed. This was a game that showed that video games could be more than just mindless entertainment, they could be a medium for telling deep, meaningful stories. Final Fantasy VII was also a game that was not afraid to take risks 
in terms of development. The game was originally in development for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES, but it was moved to the PlayStation due to the latter's superior capabilities. This was a risky move, as the PlayStation was a new and unproven platform at the time. However, the risk paid off, as the game's 3D graphics and full motion videos were a showcase of the PlayStation's capabilities. It's interesting, isn't it, how similar 7 is to Chrono Trigger from 1995 or Xenogears from 1998. The narrative similarities between Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII, and Xenogears are indeed striking. Each game features a parasitic alien entity with a god complex as the main antagonist. This entity uses its powers to genetically control or alter human beings over a period of time, and has lived on the planet for all of known history. This recurring theme is no coincidence, but rather a reflection of the shared creative roots of these games. Xenogears, in fact, was originally intended to be Final Fantasy VII. However, Squaresoft deemed the storyline from Xenogears too dark and complicated to fit within the Final Fantasy franchise. The controversial elements in Xenogears, such as instances of pixel nudity, abusive childhoods, heavy religious imagery, cannibalism, racism, and genocide were indeed darker and more complex than what was typically seen in Final Fantasy games. However, these elements contributed to the unique identity of Xenogears and set it apart from other RPGs of the time. The development of Final Fantasy VII was a period of creative exploration for Squaresoft. The game went through various conceptual stages, including a 2D SNES game and a detective game about a character named Detective Joe investigating Mako reactors. These discarded ideas didn't go to waste, though. For example, the original concept of Final Fantasy VII being set in a futuristic New York City was later used as the inspiration for the survival horror RPG Parasite Eve. Plus, there was Chrono Trigger and Xenogears. Finally, one of the enduring mysteries of Final Fantasy is how Cloud's Buster Sword stays attached to his back. Theories have ranged from Velcro to Materia Holes to a micro-reunion effect. However, I can clear this up for you. The original design for Cloud includes a circle on his back, held up by his signature suspenders. This circle is a powerful magnet that holds the Buster Sword in place, solving the mystery in a way that is both practical and fitting with the game's futuristic setting. This is Rupture Farms. I used to work here. Well... I was really a slave. That's me. My name is Abe. I was Employee of the Year. Now I'm dead meat. Oddworld Abe's Odyssey, a two-dimensional platformer, introduced us to a world that was as strange as it was captivating, and a protagonist whose journey was as inspiring as it was challenging. This game wasn't just a hit, it was a phenomenon, selling over 3.5 million copies and becoming one of the best-selling PlayStation games of all time. Abe is a Mudokan, a member of a species that has been enslaved and transformed into obedient workers by the ruthless Gluckens. When Abe discovers that he and his fellow Mudokans are to be slaughtered to make a new product, he decides to escape and liberate as many of his people as he can. This premise sets the stage for a game that is as much about survival as it is about rebellion. Abe's journey is fraught with danger, but he's not without resources. One of the game's most innovative features is its communication system. 
them. Abe can interact with other Mudicons, giving them instructions and guiding them to safety. This mechanic adds a layer of strategy to the game as players must not only navigate the game's obstacles, but also manage their fellow Mudicons. The game's setting, Oddworld, is a richly detailed and deeply immersive environment. Each species has its own history and culture, and the game's levels are filled with intricate details that bring this world to life. From the grimy industrial interiors of the Rupture Farms factory to the eerie alien landscapes of the outside world, every screen of Oddworld Abe's Odyssey is a testament to the game's art direction. But perhaps the most significant aspect of Oddworld is its underlying message. At its core, this is a game about resistance, about standing up to oppression and fighting for freedom. It's a theme that resonates deeply, and it's handled with a level of maturity and nuance. It challenged the conventions of its genre, offering a gameplay experience that was as thought-provoking as it was entertaining. Oddworld Abe's Odyssey reflects the growing maturity of the medium, the increasing ambitions of its creators, and the evolving expectations of its audience. It's a game that, despite its fantastical setting and quirky characters, speaks to universal themes of freedom, resistance, and the power of the individual. Based on the 1995 James Bond film of the same name, GoldenEye 007 was more than just a game, it was a phenomenon. GoldenEye was a game of firsts. It was one of the first games to demonstrate the viability of home consoles as platforms for first-person shooters, a genre that had been previously dominated by PC games. This was a game that showed the world that consoles could deliver a first-person shooter experience that was every bit as immersive and engaging as anything on the PC. But GoldenEye 007 didn't just replicate the first-person shooter experience on a console, it elevated it. The game introduced atmospheric single-player missions that were a far cry from the run-and-gun gameplay of earlier shooters. These missions were filled with tension and suspense, requiring players to think strategically and use stealth to overcome their enemies. This was a game that rewarded patience and precision over brute force, and it was a game that made you feel like a real spy. One of the most innovative features of GoldenEye was its multiplayer mode. This was a last-minute addition to the game, added just a month before its release. But despite its rushed development, the multiplayer mode was a resounding success. It allowed up to four players to compete in various deathmatch scenarios via split-screen, a feature that was groundbreaking at the time. The multiplayer mode was not just a fun diversion, it was a game-changer, setting a new standard for console shooters and paving the way for future multiplayer player classics. GoldenEye 007 was also a game that was steeped in the lore of its source material. The game was filled with references to the 16 Bond movies that had been released prior to GoldenEye, as well as a cheeky Star Trek reference in the form of red-shirted civilians. These nods to pop culture added a layer of depth to the game, making it a treat for fans of the Bond franchise and sci-fi enthusiasts alike. The Curse of Monkey Island follows the misadventures of Guybrush Threepwood, a bumbling yet endearing pirate, as he seeks to lift a curse from his love, Elaine Marley, all while being pursued by the undead pirate LeChuck. The game's narrative is a delightful blend of humor, romance, and high seas adventure, and it's brought to life by a cast of colorful characters, each with their own quirks and personalities. One of the game's most distinctive features is its pop-up action menu and inventory chest. This innovative design 
design choice streamlined the gameplay and made the game more accessible to newcomers. Instead of having to navigate through complex menus, players could easily access their inventory and perform actions with a simple click of the mouse. This was a significant departure from the verb command used in previous games in the series, and it set a new standard for user-friendly design in point-and-click adventure games. This was the first game in the series to be released on CD-ROM, which allowed for a full musical score and fully animated cutscenes. The introduction of voice acting added a new layer of depth to the characters and made the game's humor even more engaging. The voice acting was widely praised for its quality and for the performances of the actors, who brought the game's characters to life with their expressive and comedic performances. The Curse of Monkey Island adopted a cartoon-like cell animation style, a departure from the pixel art of the previous games. This gave the game a unique and vibrant aesthetic that perfectly complemented its humorous tone. The game's visuals, combined with its engaging narrative and innovative gameplay, made it a standout title in 1997, and it earned numerous awards and accolades. However, by the time Curse of Monkey Island was released, the genre was beginning to show signs of decline. Even Sierra Online, one of the pioneers of the adventure game genre, had shifted its focus towards publishing titles like Diablo Hellfire and You Don't Know Jack. The reality was that adventure games were no longer capturing the interest of the majority of gamers. The rise of more action-oriented genres, coupled with the increasing cost of game development and marketing, were putting pressure on the adventure game market. Curse of Monkey Island represented the last hurrah of LucasArts' 2D adventure games. Released at a time when gamers were upgrading their PCs with 3DFX cards and embracing the 3D gaming revolution, Curse was a throwback to the genre's heyday. Its hand-drawn art style, intricate puzzles, and witty dialogue were a nostalgic nod to the adventure games of the past. However, the game also highlighted some of the issues that were contributing to the decline of the genre. Adventure games are inherently challenging, requiring players to solve complex puzzles and navigate intricate storylines. In the past, this was part of their appeal, but as gaming culture evolved, tolerance for this level of difficulty began to wane. Unlike modern games, which often provide inbuilt clues and prompts to help players when they're stuck, Curse of Monkey Island offered no such assistance. The game often left players with no clear idea of what they were supposed to be doing or how to achieve it. As time moved on and new technologies arose, games like this found themselves in an era where players could easily alt-tab to game facts for a walkthrough. And this lack of guidance was increasingly seen as a flaw rather than a feature. In retrospect, the release of Curse of Monkey Island marked the end of an era for adventure games. While the genre would continue to evolve and find new audiences in the years to come, the heyday of the 90s adventure game was drawing to a close. The changing tastes of gamers, coupled with the increasing costs and complexities of game development, were ushering in a new era of gaming. And while adventure games would always hold a special place in the history of the medium, their dominance was coming to an end. Castlevania Symphony of the Night took the familiar setting and characters of the Castlevania series and infused them with the elements of role-playing games. 
The protagonist is Alucard, the Dampier son of Dracula, who must navigate the labyrinthine corridors of his father's castle, battling monsters and collecting items to enhance his abilities. This RPG-style progression system was a departure from the more straightforward action gameplay of previous Castlevania games. Instead of progressing through a series of linear stages, players are free to explore Dracula's castle at their own pace, uncovering its secrets and unlocking new areas as they gain new abilities. This sense of exploration and discovery is a hallmark of the Metroidvania genre, and Castlevania Symphony of the Night executes it brilliantly. The castle is a sprawling, interconnected maze filled with hidden rooms, secret passages, and challenging enemies. Navigating its corridors is a rewarding puzzle in itself, and it's a testament to the game's design that it remains engaging and enjoyable even after multiple playthroughs. Drawing heavily from Gothic and Renaissance styles of architecture, the castle is a visual feast, filled with intricate details and atmospheric lighting. The soundtrack, meanwhile, is a masterful blend of haunting melodies and energetic rock tracks that perfectly complement the game's gothic aesthetic. Together, these elements create an immersive and atmospheric experience that is as memorable as it is engaging. Age of Empires is a game that transports players back in time, sort of like a time capsule as a video game instead of a time capsule filled with video games, allowing them to lead an ancient civilization from the Stone Age to the Iron Age. This journey through time is not just a backdrop for the gameplay, but a fundamental part of it. As players advance through the ages, they unlock new technologies, weapons, and units, each reflecting the historical period they represent. This integration of history and gameplay creates a rich, immersive experience that educates as much as it entertains. Age of Empires is not a game of brute force, but of careful planning and strategic decision-making. Players must manage resources, develop their civilization, and navigate complex diplomatic relationships, all while defending against enemy attacks. This multifaceted gameplay requires a balance of short-term tactics and long-term strategy, and it's this depth that keeps players coming back for more. Ultima Online was a game that broke the mold in more ways than one. It was one of the first games to truly embrace the concept of a massively multiplayer online world, a world where thousands of players could interact, trade, and battle in real time. This was a game that didn't just offer a multiplayer mode, it was a game that was built from the ground up to be a shared experience, a living, breathing world that was constantly evolving and changing. One of the most innovative aspects of Ultima Online was its player versus player combat system. Unlike many games of its time, Ultima Online didn't shy away from player conflict. It embraced it. This was a game where players could engage in epic battles, form alliances, and even betray each other. This was truly groundbreaking. A perfect example of this was the infamous assassination of Lord British, the in-game persona of Richard Garriott, the game's creator. During a public appearance in the game, a player managed to kill Lord British, an event that was supposed to be impossible. This unexpected turn of events sent shockwaves through the community and highlighted the unpredictable and immersive nature of the game. But Ultima Online wasn't just about combat, it was also a game that offered a rich and immersive world to explore. The game featured multiple worlds, each with their own unique features and rule sets. Players could build their own houses, create their own items, and even shape the economy of the game. This level of player agency was unheard of, and it set the standard for future MMORPGs. 
However, Ultima Online was not without its challenges. The game's ambitious scope and massive player base led to severe lag problems, and the game's controversial in-game events often sparked heated debates within the community. But despite these challenges, Ultima Online remained a beloved and influential game, one that set the stage for the MMOs that would follow. The assassination of Lord British remains one of the most memorable moments in the game's history, a testament to the unpredictable and immersive nature of Ultima Online. By the time Ultima Online had hit the scene in 1997, the Ultima franchise had already been a staple in the gaming world for 16 years. The series, which began its journey in the early 80s, was a pioneer in the RPG genre, offering players a rich and immersive fantasy world long before the advent of modern MMOs. The Ultima series started its journey around the same time as the AD&D games such as Pools of Radiance. These games were among the first to bring the tabletop RPG experience to the computer screen, offering players a new way to engage with the fantasy worlds they loved. The Ultima series was a standout amongst these early RPGs, known for its deep storytelling, complex character development, and innovative gameplay mechanics. By the time Ultima Online was released, the franchise had already established a strong reputation among gamers. The game took the series' signature elements and translated them into an online multiplayer environment. Ultima Online was one of the first games to offer a persistent online world, where players could interact with each other and the environment in real time. Despite the franchise's age, Ultima Online managed to breathe new life into the series. The game's success demonstrated that the Ultima franchise was still relevant and capable of innovating in a rapidly evolving gaming landscape. It also showed that there was a demand for online multiplayer RPGs, paving the way for future MMORPGs like World of Warcraft and Guild Wars. Sega was in a state of flux. The company was juggling multiple projects, from the development of new consoles like the Sega Saturn and the 32X, to the expansion into other markets like theme parks and arcade machines. Amidst this whirlwind of activity, Sega's iconic mascot, Sonic the Hedgehog, seemed to be put on the back burner. It took three years for Sonic to make his debut on the Saturn, and when he did, it was not in a new adventure, but in a compilation of his Genesis exploits, aptly named Sonic Jam. Sonic Jam was a unique offering in the Sonic franchise. It bundled together the four main Sonic games from the Genesis era, but it also introduced something new, a 3D environment called Sonic World. This was a first for the series, a prototype of what a 3D Sonic game could look like. It was a tantalizing glimpse into the future, a promise of what was to come. But it was also a stark reminder of what was missing. Sonic had yet to make the leap into 3D, a transition that his peers like Mario had already successfully made. The delay in Sonic's 3D debut was not due to a lack of trying. In fact, during this period, Sonic Team was hard at work on another project, Nights into Dreams. This game, which featured a new character and a unique flying mechanic, was a departure from the fast-paced platforming of the Sonic games. It was a bold move, a sign of Sonic Team's willingness to experiment and push boundaries. But it also meant that Sonic was left in the dust, at least for a while. 
While Sonic Team was exploring new horizons with Knights, Sega was also dealing with other challenges. The company was struggling to keep up with the competition. The Saturn, despite its initial success in Japan, was being overshadowed by the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64. Sega's decision to release the 32X, a cheaper entry into the 32-bit era, also backfired, as it quickly lost popularity after the holiday season. These missteps, coupled with the lack of a new Sonic game, put Sega in a precarious position. The company was exploring other avenues, from developing the Sega Model 2 arcade system to launching indoor theme parks called Joypolis. Sega was also making strides in the PC market with Sega Soft, and it even ventured into the arcade pinball market. These endeavors showcased Sega's versatility and ambition, but they also highlighted the company's scattered focus. In the midst of all of this, Sonic Jam was released. The game was a celebration of Sonic's past, a nostalgic trip down memory lane, but it was also a testament to Sonic's enduring appeal. Despite the lack of a new game, Sonic's popularity remained strong. The success of Sonic Jam was a reminder of the character's iconic status and his importance to Sega. Argonaut Software, already a sensation in the gaming community for their work with Nintendo on Star Fox, had pushed the Super NES to its limits with pioneering 3D gameplay. While Star Fox had been a milestone for both Nintendo and Argonaut, the relationship had started to show cracks. Argonaut's vision had been growing beyond technical marvels. They aimed to explore 3D worlds further. They pitched to Nintendo a 3D platformer that featured Yoshi, one of their most beloved characters. It was a bold pitch that could have tightly interwoven Argonaut's future with Nintendo, but Nintendo's response was quiet, and they soon started cutting ties with Argonaut. It wasn't until 26 years later, in 2020, that a massive leak would reveal that Nintendo had started development on Super Mario 64 at around the same time as this Yoshi game was pitched. Perhaps it isn't entirely surprising that Jez Sand, the founder of Argonaut, felt that his Yoshi game was ripped off to create a Mario game instead. It was a tense moment. Years later, Shigeru Miyamoto, the iconic developer behind many of Nintendo's most successful franchises, was rumored to have apologized for not having greenlit the Croc concept, acknowledging in interviews that perhaps his team had underestimated Argonaut's creative capacity. The loss was mutual. Argonaut had not just been another third-party contractor for Nintendo. They were trailblazers who helped define an era of 3D gaming. Determined not to let their ideas fade into oblivion, Argonaut took their rejected Yoshi concept and transformed it into Croc, Legend of the Gabos. Published through Fox Interactive, it became Argonaut's biggest triumph, both in terms of sales and royalties. Released a year after after Super Mario 64 had set the bar for 3D platformers, Croc still managed to captivate audiences. The protagonist, a young crocodile named Croc, embarks on a quest to rescue his fluffy companions, the Gabos, from the evil Baron Dante. 
Yet Croc found itself both blessed and cursed by inevitable comparisons to Super Mario 64, which media outlets were quick to make. On one hand, being compared to what many considered to be the modern epitome of 3D platforming provided the game with instant visibility it might not have otherwise achieved. On the other hand, that same comparison set the bar almost impossibly high. While Mario moved with a fluidity and precision that almost intuitively communicated with the player, Croc's movements were more cumbersome, its world less inviting. Players inevitably measured Croc against the Mario standard, and in that regard, Croc could be seen as falling short. Despite its rocky inception, Croc became a commercial sensation, selling over 3 million copies on PlayStation alone, and being one of the only 3D platformers available on the Sega Saturn. The game resonated with a broad demographic, attracting a notably large female audience, but it wasn't without its critics. While the visuals were charming and vibrant, the game's controls and level design received mixed reviews, cited as clunky and derivative. Still, something about Croc's enchanting world touched gamers, its captivating music, entertaining cutscenes, and clever password system added layers of engagement that extended beyond mere gameplay. More than just a game, Croc embodied Argonaut's drive to push the envelope. In an era when such cross-platform ventures were not as common as they are today, Croc broke new ground. The franchise expanded beyond the gaming world, venturing into other forms of media with the announcement of a Croc cartoon show. Further, the franchise extended its reach into the burgeoning mobile gaming market with the development of Croc Mobile Games. This innovative approach to expanding the game's universe across multiple platforms was a testament to the forward-thinking strategies of Argonaut Games, and it laid the groundwork for the multimedia franchises we see in the gaming industry today. Yet what is often forgotten, or worse still never known, is how Croc influenced the gaming industry from the shadows. Croc had its finger on the pulse of gaming's potential future, and it became a testing ground for concepts that would later become ubiquitous in the genre. It signaled to other studios that they could venture into the genre, outside the towering shadows of Nintendo and Sony first-party titles. Jez San, Argonaut's founder, recounted an episode where a Rare employee thanked him for the idea of using a backpack in their seminal title, Banjo-Kazooie. Banjo, of course, is often credited with defining how 3D platformers approached inventory and interactive capabilities. There are even anecdotal claims that Croc's collectible crystals were the inspiration for Sonic's iconic rings. If true, this would be yet another feather in Croc's cap, or perhaps perhaps more fittingly, another item in its backpack. The music is even sometimes named as one of the inspirations for Koji Kondo's later work, and considering how closely he was known to crib from other musicians... Well, it's not exactly unbelievable. The game was also ahead of its time in implementing mechanics such as wall climbing, monkey bar traversing, and underwater movements that would become staples in later titles. The game also features a password system and bonus levels, offering a true ending for dedicated players. Yet fate, ever capricious, had other plans. The initial luster of Croc's innovation was tarnished by its steep difficulty curve, cumbersome tank controls, which did not hold up well considering the DualShock was released just one month prior to Croc's release, and a punishing level design that drove players to frustration. Much like its reptilian protagonist, Croc's legacy swims in complex waters. While often shadowed by the revolutionary impact of Super Mario 64, 
Croc still holds its own as an unsung pioneer in the realm of 3D platforming. It marked both an end and a beginning, the end of Argonaut's direct relationship with Nintendo, but also the genesis of a franchise and the reaffirmation of a studio's resilient spirit. In 1998, the gaming world was a whirlwind of excitement and change as the industry underwent two crucial milestones. The recognition of video games as an art form, and the birth of the six-console generation with Sega's Dreamcast. At long last, video games were seen as a legitimate art form, with organizations like the AIAS, BAFTA, and the newly minted Game Critics Awards acknowledging the creative achievements in gaming. The result? A surge of innovative titles that captured the imagination of gamers and critics alike. This period laid the foundation for today's gaming landscape, where creativity and artistry are celebrated hand-in-hand -hand with technological advancements. However, the industry's growing pains were also evident. Titles like Kingpin sparked controversy for their violent content, catching the attention of President Bill Clinton in the U.S. Congress. This renewed focus on the ESRB and its role in regulating the gaming industry led to increased scrutiny and pressure to self-regulate. It was a critical time for both the creative and ethical development of games. Meanwhile, Sega released the groundbreaking Dreamcast, ushering in the six-console generation. Graphics, graphics, the graphics. Better graphics means it's more realistic. And embattled Sega's new Dreamcast video game console is graphically better. The Dreamcast boasted advanced hardware that smoothed the transition from 2D to 3D and introduced online connectivity, paving the way for a new level of social interaction and online gaming. With these innovative features, the stage was set for an intense console war as Sega, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo vied for gamers' hearts and wallets. As the first sixth-gen console, the Dreamcast set a high bar, pushing competitors to up their game and fueling the rapid evolution of the gaming industry. How did the recognition of video games as an art form impact the industry's creative direction and the evolution of gaming experiences? What were the long-term effects of increased scrutiny and pressure to self-regulate on the gaming industry, and how did the launch of the Dreamcast and the dawn of the sixth-generation console shape the competitive landscape and drive innovation? Ocarina of Time wasn't just about introducing Link in 3D, it was about redefining what an action-adventure game could be. The game's narrative depth, combined with its expansive world, made players feel like they were part of an epic tale. Every corner of Hyrule was meticulously crafted, every character interaction had purpose, and every puzzle was a test of wit. But what truly set Ocarina of Time apart was its innovative gameplay mechanics. Before Ocarina of Time, 3D combat was, let's face it, a bit of a mess. You'd swing your weapon hoping it'd connect with the enemy. But with the introduction of the Z-targeting system, combat became strategic. It allowed players to focus on one enemy, dodge, parry, and counterattack, making every battle feel dynamic and engaging. It's a system so intuitive that variations of it are still used in games today. Now, while the game was a technical marvel, it also had its quirks, and by quirks I mean Navi. Hey, listen! 
Link's ever-present fairy companion. With her incessant, hey, listen, interruptions, she quickly became the bane of many players. But despite being dubbed one of the most annoying game characters, Navi played a crucial role. She was the game's way of guiding players, offering hints, and ensuring they never felt lost in this vast world. Annoying, maybe, essential, absolutely. But Ocarina of Time's influence didn't stop at its own franchise. During its development, another iconic game was in the works, Super Mario 64. These two titles, both ambitious in their own right, shared more than just a development timeline. Mechanics, ideas, and even assets were exchanged between the two teams. It's fascinating to think that the horse Epona, a beloved character in Ocarina of Time, was initially conceptualized for Mario's 3D debut. And those whirlwinds in Super Mario 64, they bear a striking resemblance to Ocarina's Song of Storms. These crossovers highlight the collaborative spirit at Nintendo during this era, where boundaries were blurred in the pursuit of gaming excellence. Imagine a world where first-person shooters were mostly about running, gunning, and navigating mazes. Then comes Half-Life, flipping the script entirely. Instead of isolated levels, you had a continuous, interconnected world. Instead of a silent protagonist, you had, well, okay, Gordon Freeman was silent, but the world around him was anything but. The game's narrative was woven seamlessly into the gameplay, with scripted sequences that pulled you into the story without ever taking control away from you. It was a masterclass in immersion about our bespectacled hero, Gordon Freeman. The guy doesn't utter a single word throughout the game, yet he's one of the most iconic characters in gaming history. How? Through the world, the characters around him, the environment, the events, and yes, those pesky headcrabs. Every element in the game served to guide, inform, or challenge the player. Valve, an indie company at the time, conducted over 200 external playtests with dozens of testers to meticulously refine every aspect of gameplay. This level of external testing was exceptional, especially when some indie game companies today only conduct internal playtests. But Half-Life wasn't just a product of genius design, it was also a product of inspiration. It drew from the fast-paced action of Doom and Quake, but it also took cues from pop culture. Stephen King's The Mist and an episode of The Outer Limits titled The Borderland played a role in shaping the game's narrative and environment. And if you've ever felt a manga-esque vibe from the game, you weren't wrong. The level design was influenced by the environments in the manga series Akira. But what truly sets Half-Life apart is its legacy. This wasn't just a game, it was the foundation of what would become one of the most influential companies in the gaming history, Valve. This game was the spark that led to the creation of Steam, the behemoth of digital game distribution, one that owns over 75% of the digital distribution market. And while many of us today associate Steam with sales and a never-ending backlog of games, it's essential to remember that at its core, Steam is a form of digital rights management, DRM, ensuring game ownership and proper functionality. It's a testament to Valve's genius that they managed to make anti-piracy DRM not just palatable, but desirable. Fast forward to today and Half-Life still holds its own. Sure, graphics have evolved and game design has seen numerous innovations, but the core of what made Half-Life great 
remains intact. And for those who want a fresh take on this classic, there's Black Mesa, a fan-made remake that captures the essence of the original while adding its own flair. It's worth playing both versions to appreciate the nuances and see how far we've come. Unreal was the brainchild of a collaboration between Epic Mega Games and Digital Extremes. The game's development journey is a tale of ambition, innovation, and a bit of serendipity. Funded by the proceeds from Epic Pinball, a shareware sensation, Unreal began its life in 1994. The vision was grand, with ideas like MMO-like functionality being thrown around. Although not all these ambitious features made the cut, what emerged was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible in 3D gaming. One of the standout aspects of Unreal was its seamless transition between indoor and outdoor environments. This was a game that didn't just want to confine you to dimly lit corridors, it wanted to give you sprawling alien lands to explore. The game's lighting was another marvel, dynamic, moody, and atmospheric. It added layers of depth and immersion to the gameplay. But perhaps the most enduring legacy of Unreal isn't the game itself, but the engine it spawned. The Unreal Engine has become a cornerstone of game development. From powering indie gems like Everything to being the foundation for spin-offs like Unreal Tournament, its influence is undeniable. It's akin to how Half-Life led to the creation of Steam. Unreal's engine became the industry's workhorse at one point being used in over 60% of all games hitting the market. Behind this game were visionaries who would go on to shape the industry in profound ways. Cliff Blazinski, Cliffy B, the mind behind Gears of War and a slew of other games, cut his teeth on Unreal. Then there's Tim Sweeney, multi-billionaire CEO of Epic Games and largest landowner in North Carolina, who's now steering Fortnite's course arguably the closest thing we have to a true metaverse. And let's not forget Mark Rain, whose journey from an unpaid tester at id to the vice president of Epic is the stuff of industry legend. Yet for all its innovations and the talent it nurtured, Unreal often finds itself overshadowed. Games like Half-Life, with its narrative-driven gameplay, often steal the limelight. But Unreal was a pioneer. It demanded a 3D graphics processor, not just suggested it. And it wasn't just about making things look pretty. It was about redefining the gaming experience. Later, Unreal Tournament, which many still mistakenly believe to be the main brand, began as an add-on pack. Its success is a testament to the solid foundation the original game built. The result? A game that set the standard for multiplayer shooters. Pokemon Red and Blue were more than just games, they were a revolution. They introduced a new type of gameplay that was as addictive as it was innovative. The premise was simple. Traverse the fictional region of Kanto, capture a variety of creatures known as Pokemon, and train them to battle. But beneath this simplicity lay a world of depth and complexity. Each Pokemon had its own set of abilities, strengths, and weaknesses, and the player had to strategically assemble their team to overcome the challenges they faced. This strategic element, combined with the game's expansive world and diverse roster of Pokemon, made for a gaming experience that was 
endlessly engaging. The creation of Pokemon was a six-year effort by the Japanese video game creators, who also developed the trading cards. Initially, Nintendo was not entirely convinced of Pokemon's potential in the United States. However, the company's strategic marketing plan and savvy licensing played a pivotal role in its success. They worked with several key players to integrate Pokemon everywhere. 4Kids Entertainment negotiated licensing agreements on behalf of Nintendo outside of Asia. Wizards of the Coast published the Pokemon trading cards, which were wildly successful and sold more than 2 million starter sets. And Hasbro was the master toy licensor, producing Pokemon Monopoly, plush toys, beanbag toys, and collectible figures, amongst other products. One of the most unique aspects of Pokemon Red and Blue was the concept of trading. Using a Game Link cable, players could exchange Pokemon between cartridges. This feature not only encouraged social interaction, but also added a new layer of strategy to the game. Certain Pokemon could only be obtained through trading, and others would only evolve after being traded. This meant that to truly catch them all, players had to interact with each other, fostering a sense of community that was rare. Inspired by the childhood pastime of insect collecting, the game's creators populated the world of Pokemon with a diverse array of creatures. From the fiery dragon Charizard to the adorable electric mouse Pikachu, each Pokemon was distinct and memorable. These designs struck a chord with players, turning many of these creatures into beloved icons. Metal Gear Solid introduced us to the enigmatic world of Solid Snake, a character whose legacy would span decades. But it wasn't just the character that left a mark, it was the game's intricate blend of storytelling, gameplay mechanics, and those unforgettable boss battles. The game's success wasn't a given, in fact expectations were low which ironically gave Kojima the freedom to experiment, and boy did he deliver. Metal Gear Solid went on to sell over 7 million units, setting the stage for a franchise that would dominate the gaming landscape. Its influence can't be understated. Metal Gear Solid popularized the stealth genre, inspiring a slew of games that emphasized strategy over brute force. And while it wasn't the first game to incorporate stealth mechanics, it was the one that perfected them. It's often said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and in the years that followed, many games tried to capture the magic of Metal Gear Solid. As these time capsules become tighter, more packed with games that have long and storied histories, it becomes more clear that there are some games with less to say about them. Figuring out which games deserve to be memorialized in a time capsule becomes an increasingly complex challenge. There's no shortage of opinions, and the truth is, many of these views are valid in their own right. The term bonus level speaks to a universal experience in gaming, those extra stages or secret rooms that add an unexpected twist to the gameplay. Think about finding hidden warp zones in Super Mario Bros., or secret stages in Sonic the Hedgehog. These bonus levels have long been a way for game designers to get creative, or for players to earn extra rewards. They've been around since the early days of gaming, and have evolved alongside it. Inside of some time capsules going forward, there will be a bonus level segment, where we'll delve into games that might not make the mainstream headlines, but have influenced gaming culture, sparked trends, or created strong enough communities to be in a time capsule, but without a full chapter. Let's start with our fire-breathing friend Spyro. 
While Mario 64 might have given us a taste of 3D platforming, Spyro took it to another level, quite literally. The game's 3D panoramic engine introduced us to a dynamic system of rendering that was, at the time, revolutionary. Level of detail scaling? Mario 64 faked it, but Spyro did it right on the PS1. Imagine walking through Spyro's vibrant world with objects near you rendered in crisp detail while distant ones, though simpler, were still visible, creating an expansive feel to the game. This was all thanks to the engine's ability to use varying levels of detail, a technique that was pretty much unheard of at the time, and the skies, those mesmerizing vast expanses, were a result of vertex shading, a technique that painted the skies with colors and details without relying on textures. It's like the developers had a magic paintbrush and they weren't afraid to use it. But Spyro wasn't just a technical marvel, it was also a testament to the power of character-driven narratives in gaming. The success of Spyro propelled him to mascot status for the PlayStation, standing shoulder to shoulder with Crash Bandicoot. And let's not forget Insomniac, the brains behind Spyro. This was their breakout hit, and they'd go on to give us other iconic franchises like Ratchet and Clank and Spider-Man. Talk about setting the stage for greatness. Now shifting gears, pun intended to Gran Turismo. By the time this racing simulation hit the US, it had already sold a whopping 2 million copies in Japan. And remember, this was the same year Pokemon was released in Japan. To outsell Pokemon on its home turf is no mean feat. It became the best-selling PlayStation game in the US for two consecutive years, 1998 and 1999, and its success wasn't just about the numbers. It redefined what racing games could be, offering a level of realism and detail that was unparalleled. 1999 was a pivotal year in the gaming industry, marked by the rise of indie developers, the continued innovation of established companies, and the beginning of significant legal issues. It was also the year when Hollywood elites started using video games as a storytelling medium. A prime example of this was the creation of Medal of Honor by none other than Steven Spielberg. This was not the first step towards mainstreaming video games, but it was a major one, representing the commodification of video games and their growing acceptance and legitimization in the cultural milieu. The year also saw the phenomenal success of Pokemon, which became the best-selling game for the second year in a row. It was expected to generate $700 million in retail sales in 1999, equivalent to $1.282 billion today, and had over 1,000 different products. The popularity of Pokemon contributed significantly to the 250% jump in Nintendo Game Boy sales in the first quarter, as well as the near doubling of Nintendo stock. The game sold over 4 million copies in its first year, and its popularity extended beyond the gaming world. The weekly Pokemon television show on the WB network became the top-rated children's TV show in the country. The video rental Pokemon Seaside Pikachu topped the bestseller list for all videos, not just children's titles. And in November, Pokemon the movie Mewtwo Strikes Back was released in theaters. In the midst of these developments, the Sony Corporation v. Bleem LLC case highlighted the importance of protecting intellectual property in the gaming world while also stirring up a debate on the critical role of emulation in preserving gaming history. 
and providing access to older games. It is at this point I should remind you that emulation is not illegal because of this case. Silent Hill, a name that sends shivers down the spines of many who hear it. Not just because of the haunting tales and grotesque monsters that lurk within its foggy streets, but because of the sheer genius behind its creation. Silent Hill didn't just rely on jump scares or grotesque monsters to instill fear. No, it was all about the ambiance. The town of Silent Hill was perpetually shrouded in fog, a design choice that was initially made to mask the PlayStation's hardware limitations, but this limitation turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The fog became one of the game's most iconic features, creating a sense of unease and anticipation. You never knew what lurked just beyond your field of vision, and that uncertainty was more terrifying than any monster the game could throw at you. The game's protagonist, Harry Mason, is searching for his missing daughter in a town that seems to be actively working against him. Harry's journey is one of desperation and determination. But what's interesting is how the game plays with your perceptions. Silent Hill is a town filled with monsters, yes, but it's also a town filled with memories and regrets. The monsters Harry encounters are manifestations of his own fears and guilt, making his journey as much a psychological battle as a physical one. Perhaps one of the most overlooked aspects of Silent Hill is its street names. Now, I know what you're thinking. Streets? Really? But bear with me. The streets in Silent Hill are named after famous science fiction and horror authors. From Richard Bachman, a pseudonym for Stephen King, to Ray Bradbury, the game pays homage to the greats of the genre. It's a subtle nod, but one that shows the depths of thought that went into the game's creation. The developers weren't just making a game, they were crafting a love letter to horror itself. But what makes Silent Hill truly special is its legacy. Over two decades later, the game's influence can still be felt. From the atmospheric horror of games like Amnesia The Dark Descent, to the psychological terror of titles like Until Dawn, Silent Hill's DNA is woven into the fabric of the horror genre. <laughs> Now, when you think of fighting games, you might picture complex combos, quarter circle turns, and a steep learning curve. But Super Smash Bros. took that formula, chucked it out the window, and said, let's make something everyone can enjoy. Super Smash Bros. wasn't just another fighting game. It was a celebration of Nintendo's rich history. Imagine the thrill of seeing Mario, Link, Pikachu, and Samus all duking it out in one arena. It was like the Avengers of the Nintendo world, way before cinematic universes were even a thing. This game was a statement, a declaration that Nintendo was not just a collection of franchises, but a unified brand. It was a love letter to fans, bringing together beloved characters from various universes all under one roof. Traditional fighting games had you depleting your opponent's health bar, but Super Smash Bros. flipped the script. Instead of whittling down health, you aimed to launch your foes off the stage. The more damage they took, the further they'd fly. It was a simple yet ingenious twist that made battles frantic, unpredictable, and downright fun. And the controls? They were as easy as pie, ensuring that anyone, whether a newbie or a seasoned gamer, could pick up a controller and get in on the action. But here's a fun tidbit that many might not know. During its early development stages, the game didn't even feature any Nintendo characters. It was initially referred to as Pepsi Man, because the primitive polygonal features used in the prototype resembled a mascot Pepsi used in Japan during the 90s. Imagine that, a world where Super Smash Bros. might have been a game about soda mascots brawling it out. 
1996, Blizzard showcases a version of StarCraft that, let's just say, didn't exactly blow anyone's socks off. It was dubbed Warcraft in Space and not in a good way. Instead of canceling it or releasing something bad, Blizzard took the criticism to heart, went back to the drawing board, and overhauled the entire project. They introduced three distinct species, each with its unique gameplay mechanics, making it a strategic battleground for players, and the graphics went from hand-drawn to rendered, giving the game a polished look that was miles ahead of its initial presentation. And when it was released, it was successful. But the real magic of StarCraft wasn't just in its gameplay or graphics, it was in its storytelling. Each faction had a rich backstory, and the campaign mode took players on an epic journey through space, filled with political intrigue, betrayal, and of course, intergalactic warfare. It was like playing through a sci-fi novel, where every decision mattered and every battle had consequences. In the midst of the digital revolution that swept across the globe, South Korea was undergoing its own transformation. The country's rapid digitalization from the 1960s to the 1980s was nothing short of remarkable. From a nation that had once grappled with the aftermath of war, South Korea emerged as a technological powerhouse, and this digital evolution played a pivotal role in setting the stage for StarCraft's media rise. Enter the PC bongs, or internet cafes, which began sprouting up across urban landscapes. These weren't just places to check emails or browse the web, they became social hubs, especially for the younger generation. Picture dimly lit rooms, rows of computers, and the unmistakable hum of excitement. For many young Koreans, PC bongs were the first introduction to the world of online gaming, and StarCraft was the game of choice. But why StarCraft? What was it about this game that resonated so deeply with the Korean youth? At its core, StarCraft was a game of strategy, precision, and quick thinking, attributes that resonated with the competitive spirit of many Koreans. But there was more to it. The game's intricate design, balanced gameplay, and the sheer thrill of battling opponents in real time made it a perfect fit for the PC Bong environment. Players would spend hours, often deep into the night, honing their skills, devising strategies, and battling rivals. These cafes became the breeding grounds for some of the future champions of the game. The cultural shift was palpable. StarCraft wasn't just a game, it was a movement. It bridged the gap between the digital and physical worlds, creating communities both online and offline. Friendships were forged, rivalries were born, and legends were made. And as the game's popularity soared, so did its impact on Korean society. The government, recognizing the potential of this burgeoning industry, established KESPA, the Korean Esports Association. This wasn't just a nod to the game's popularity, it was a testament to its influence. KESPA's role was to regulate, promote, and sanction professional esports, ensuring that the industry grew in a structured and sustainable manner. The government set up a whole agency to license and regulate esports because it was such a hugely important part of modern culture. Today, there is a clear and defined career path to becoming a legally registered full-time competitive gamer. We're talking televised matches, dedicated stations, and players becoming celebrities. Fans would get daily updates, building anticipation and hype like never before. And they would watch matches on TV. The Star League in South Korea wasn't just a tournament, it was an event. Players trained rigorously, strategies were dissected, and matches attracted audiences that rivaled traditional 
professional sports. The stakes were high, with players earning six-figure sums, and the game's most iconic player, Boxer, boasted a fan club of over half a million people, opening up paths for future stars like Flash. StarCraft became not just a good game, but the definitive game for an entire country, a moment in time when a nation embraced the digital future, and this helped it become the singular example of a great RTS that every other strategy game would be held up against. System Shock 2 was a game that dared to be different. At its core, it was a survival horror game, but it didn't just rely on jump scares or grotesque monsters. Instead, it created an atmosphere of dread and unease, where every corner could hide danger and every sound could be a threat. The game's setting, a derelict spaceship, was a character in itself, filled with dark corridors, malfunctioning systems, and an ever-present feeling of isolation. But what truly set System Shock 2 apart was its commitment to storytelling. The game didn't just tell you a story, it made you live it through audio logs, environmental clues, and interactions with the ship's AI. Players were slowly fed pieces of a larger narrative puzzle. It was a game that respected its players, trusting them to piece together its intricate plot without handholding or exposition dumps. And with many a twist, this wasn't just about surviving, it was about understanding your own identity and place in this dystopian world. The development team behind it was young, underfunded, and relatively inexperienced, yet they had a vision and they stuck to it. They faced challenges from the initial lukewarm reception to the limitations of the dark engine they were working with, but they persevered and in doing so, they created a masterpiece. It paved the way for titles like Deus Ex and Bioshock, games that also blended genres and emphasized deep storytelling. But more than that, System Shock 2 challenged the norms of game design. It proved that games could be more than just mindless entertainment. They could be thought-provoking, immersive experiences that stayed with the players long after the credits rolled. And yet, despite its critical acclaim, System Shock 2 was not a commercial hit upon release. It was a slow burn, a game that found its audience over time, thanks to word of mouth and a dedicated fan base. But its legacy is undeniable. Age of Empires 2 wasn't just about building empires, it was about living history. With 13 civilizations to choose from, players could relive the grandeur of the Byzantines, the conquest of the Mongols, or the resilience of the Vikings. Each civilization wasn't just a reskin, they had their unique units, technologies, and playstyles. This diversity gave players a sense of authenticity, making every campaign feel like a new history lesson. Age of Empires 2 was a game of strategy, patience, and foresight. Every move mattered, every decision had consequences, and every game was a battle of wits. And just like in chess, where every piece has its role, in Age of Empires 2, every unit, from the humble villager to the mighty trebuchet, had its purpose. But what truly set Age of Empires 2 apart was its commitment to historical accuracy. The game was a labor of love, with ensemble studios poring over historical texts and consulting experts to ensure that every detail, from the architecture to the unit designs, was as accurate as possible. 
This dedication to authenticity made the game more than just entertainment, it was an interactive history lesson. But perhaps the most fascinating aspect of Age of Empires 2 is its enduring legacy. Here we are in 2023 and the game is still receiving DLCs. That's a testament to its timeless appeal. Few games can boast such longevity and even fewer can claim to have maintained their relevance over two decades later. Imagine a world where you're handed the keys to an empty plot of land and told, go on, build the amusement park of your dreams. That's the magic of Roller Coaster Tycoon, but it wasn't just about placing rides and collecting ticket sales. Oh no, it was about crafting experiences, managing resources, and ensuring every visitor left with a smile on their face, or at least with an empty wallet. You weren't just placing pre-designed rides, you were designing them. Want a roller coaster that defies the laws of physics? Go for it. Want a gentle carousel right next to a heart-stopping drop tower? Why not? The game gave you the tools, but your imagination was the limit. And let's not forget about those hilarious ride names, the Vomitorium, anyone? But an aspect that often gets overlooked is the scenarios based on real parks. This wasn't just a fun addition, these scenarios introduced players to real-world challenges faced by amusement park managers. From managing budgets to dealing with unpredictable weather, these scenarios added a level of realism to the game, making victories all the more satisfying. This was a pivotal year for the platforming genre, marked by the release of three standout titles, Ape Escape, Sonic Adventure, and Donkey Kong 64. Each game, developed by separate gaming giants, Sony, Sega, and Nintendo respectively, offered unique innovations, but also highlighted the challenges the genre faced in the rapidly evolving gaming landscape. Ape Escape wasn't just another platformer, it was a game that demanded more from players and their controllers. Before Ape Escape, the DualShock controller was just a fancy addition to the PlayStation console, but this game changed all that. It wasn't just about jumping and running, players had to use both analog sticks to control the character and gadgets, introducing a new level of immersion and complexity. This was the birth of the dual stick control scheme, a standard in today's gaming world. It's like when you first learned to ride a bike with no hands, exhilarating and game-changing. Ape Escape showed us that controllers could be more than just buttons and joysticks, they could be an extension of the gaming experience itself. Sonic Adventure's release was a curious case of timing and perception. Picture this, a mere three weeks after the monumental release of Ocarina of Time in Japan, Sonic Adventure hits the shelves. Now, Ocarina of Time was a game that redefined what an action-adventure game could be, setting a gold standard for the genre. So when Sonic Adventure came out so closely on its heels, expectations were sky-high. But here's where things get tricky. By the time Sonic Adventure made its way to American shores, it had already been a year since its Japanese release. A year might not seem like much, but in the late 90s gaming world, it was an eternity. The industry was advancing at a pace that was almost hard to keep up with. Games that were groundbreaking one day could feel almost archaic the next. So when American gamers finally got their hands on Sonic Adventure, it was met with a mix of excitement and a tinge of disappointment. Not because it wasn't a good game, but because the market had already moved on to bigger and better things. The game's ambitious open-world exploration and multiple character storylines were impressive, but they were also indicative of a trend that was becoming problematic. Ah! 
There's no reason for me to go on. What? What am I fighting for? Donkey Kong 64 was a technical marvel, boasting a vast world filled with content, yet its sheer size was both its strength and its Achilles heel. The game was so expansive that it required an additional memory expansion pack to function properly on the Nintendo 64. This wasn't just a minor inconvenience, it symbolized a genre pushing its boundaries, sometimes to its own detriment. The need for an expansion pack underscored the fact that platformers were becoming too grandiose for their own good, with developers prioritizing scale over streamlined gameplay. Originally dubbed climbing games due to Donkey Kong's many ladders, the platforming genre, which had once been the bread and butter of the gaming world, was starting to show signs of wear and tear. There was an influx of platforming games, and while many were good, there was a sense of oversaturation. Gamers were being bombarded with bigger and more complex platformers, but the charm and simplicity that had once defined the genre was getting lost in the shuffle. The Donkey Kong 64 memory pack issue was emblematic of this. Games were being developed that were too vast for even the consoles they were designed for. The late 90s was a transformative period for the gaming industry. As the new millennium dawned, the platforming genre, once the cornerstone of gaming, began to wane. The rapid advancement in other genres, combined with a perceived stagnation in platformers, led to a decline in its popularity. The genre's giants were innovating, but the pace was frenetic, and the essence of what made platformers great was getting lost in the race. The genre, once the crown jewel of gaming, saw its market share plummet. At one point, the top performing genre, with the mini Mario and Sonic games, in the late 90s it was still a top performing genre. But from a commanding 15% in 1998, it dwindled to a mere 2% by 2002. The platforming genre faced stiff competition from other genres that were innovating at a rapid pace. While platformers often played it safe, targeting younger audiences or avoiding the platform label altogether, genres like RPGs, shooters, and action adventures were pushing boundaries and capturing players' imaginations. In the same time period that platformer all but disappeared as a genre, RPGs bulked up to over 21% of total video game sales. The gaming landscape was evolving, and platformers, for all their charm and nostalgia, were struggling to keep up. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>